I was kind of hoping I could preach from the boat. <laughs> okay. How can we know we know? There are some things in life that are too important not to be sure about. But these things, it's not just enough to think you know, you need to know you know. I wonder if you um, heard about this chap from Bournemouth, whose wife, it turned out, was a Russian spy. Did you hear about that? A few people. I didn't, I didn't know much about the story, but I guess that's a pretty devastating revelation. The woman you love, the woman you've given your heart to, turns out not to be the person you thought she was. Your marriage is a sham. In fact, it's not just a sham, it's a cover for the Russians. <laughs> it's funny, but it's, it's not for him. Now, reading about this story makes you think. Especially makes you think if you're married. Now, <laughs> I, I know my wife's not a Russian spy, but you see, so did he. <laughs> well, he, he thought he knew. The newspaper article I read had as its sound, sound bite, I thought I knew her. I thought I knew her. But he was wrong, he didn't. Some things are so important, you can't just think you know. You've got to know you know. And if this is true in relationships, it's even more true in respect to God. In case I've left anyone in a state of anxiety about whether their spouse is who they say they are, I will, um, you can come and see me afterwards. I'm not really going to resolve that question if that is a question for you. But we have an even more urgent question. If the stakes are terrifyingly high in matters of the heart, they're even higher in respect to our relationship with God. Can I know that I know God? Is that even possible? Certainly it's possible to get it terribly wrong. Jesus is really emphatic in his warnings about this. He has different ways of expressing and describing this terrible revelation of finding out that you were wrong. The one I find most haunting is of someone arriving at a great banquet to find that they are inappropriately dressed. Before my wedding day, I had this recurring nightmare in which I was late for my wedding, like really late for my wedding. I ran through the doors. Nay was there being comforted by the bridesmaids. They looked at me with evil eyes. As I ran down the front of the church, everyone was tutting. My parents wouldn't even look at me. And then as I sat down and I looked at my feet, I realised I was wearing my trainers. <laughs> and even, even that wouldn't have been so bad if it wasn't for the fact that as the dream progressed, I realised that that was all I was wearing. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had a nightmare like that? I think it's quite a common nightmare. <laughs> and Jesus warns that for some people, this nightmare will become a terrible reality. And it will become a reality for people who think they know, they, who think they're okay. 
At the end of the Bible, in the um, book of Revelation, Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, he says in warning them about this possibility, you say I am rich, I do not need a thing, but you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Elsewhere, Jesus has these words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, away from me, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. C.S. Lewis says these appalling words are as dark to the intellect as they are unendurable to the feelings. We can be both banished from the presence of him who is present everywhere, erased from the knowledge of him who knows all. We can be left utterly and absolutely outside, repelled, estranged, exiled, finally and unspeakably ignored. On the other hand, we can be called in. We can be welcomed, received and acknowledged. He says, we walk every day on the razor edge between these two incredible possibilities. And this razor edge cuts either side of the fence. If you're not a believer, it's not just enough to be sceptical about the reality of God and about the truth of what Jesus says. You can't just doubt there's a God. You've got to know there's not a God if you are going to be able to rest at night. When I try to talk to my friends about God, they say to me, well, you know, John, I've, I've read The God Delusion. I've seen a Channel 4 documentary. I, I just don't think there's anything in it. I want to shout at them. I want to say, you can't just think there's no God. You've got to know there's not Your life could be ruined if you get this wrong. Have you ever opened yourself up to the possibility that God is there? Because unless you do, you will never know. Grab a Bible, read about Jesus, ask God. If you're there, if if you're there, God, if, if Jesus is the way I can know you, then please help me to know. At the moment, we've got on a course, Christianity Explored. And this is a course that will help you to grapple with this question, to take it seriously, to open yourself up to the possibility that there is a God. There's both Christians and non-Christians there, so you can talk through these issues and really think carefully about them. If you want to know more about that, come and see me afterwards. But what about us who believe? Can we know we know? Jesus' words, when we read them, are really, really unsettling. But Jesus and the New Testament doesn't just want to leave us unsettled. He doesn't just want to keep us from... He wants to, sorry, he wants to keep us from presuming we know when we don't know. But ultimately, he wants us to know. The New Testament is absolutely emphatic. We have a firm basis. We can know and we must know our God. We must know that we belong to him... We must know that we are his beloved children and need not fear.
The place I want to go to look at this theme of knowing, of knowing that we know, of being sure, is the letter of John, of the first letter of John, 1 John. So if you want to turn to there, and we're going to be kind of doing an overview of this whole letter. And this letter is about reassuring believers about their standing with God. John describes our standing with God with kind of four favourite um, phrases or expressions. He says, um, I'll, just, I'll just read them out, you don't have to find them. He says, first of all, we know that we know him. We know that we know him. He says, we must, we must, we can know that we are in him and that he is in us. We know that we are of God, we are, we are born of him. And, we've know, and we know that we've passed from death to life. To be a Christian, in, in, according to John, is to, to, to know you have been born of God, to know him, to be in him, enjoying that personal relationship with him, which is eternal life. This relationship with God, which goes on to eternity. And of all this, John says we can be certain. That's the whole point that John writes this letter. Turn to the end, chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. You see, in the churches John was writing to, um, they, they were unsettled and anxious because a whole chunk of their congregation had, had left the church to follow some pseudo-Christian um, teaching that they thought was more sexy. And, and the congregation were left behind wondering whether they who were left were part of God's people or not. When people walk away from Jesus, it's really unsettling. And that's the position that this church was in. And John is writing to bang home the point and he really does bang it home. If you, if you read 1 John, as you read it, you'll see that basically John says the same things again and again and again in as many different ways as he can think of. And, and, and as emphatically as possible. Because John is desperate to reassure the, his churches that they are truly children of God. And that their faith is not just a facade. That, that what they know and believe is true. And that, and that their relationship with God is real. They know God, and John wants them to know they know God. So, to do this, John firstly gives them three evidences. I've called them evidences, that they know God. And these three things are belief, obedience, and love. Okay? So, the Christians John is writing to know they know because they believe the truth, they obey their father, and they love each other. That, says John, is how they know. So let me read you some chunks to give you a flavour of this. Um, first of all, let's think about belief, okay? So the first evidence that John gives the churches is belief. I'm going to read, first of all, from 2.20 to 25. I'm not going to say too much about these things, but I want you to get a feel for what John is saying. So chapter 2, verse 20. 
that you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also remain in the Son and in the Father. And then again, um, chapter 4, verse 15, just one verse. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And finally, chapter one, chapter, sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So John says an evidence that you know what you know, an evidence that you know God is that you believe him. An evidence that you know God is that you believe him. Now, on the face of it, that sounds a bit crazy. I'm a scientist, and when I present my work and my ideas and my theories to my colleagues, and they ask me how I know, if I was to say to them, because I believe it, they would leave pretty unconvinced. But you see, we've got to understand what John is saying here. John is not, first of all, talking about belief in God's existence. He's not saying we can know that God exists because we believe he does. That would be crazy. I think you probably do have to believe in order to know that God exists, but that's not what John's talking about. He's not saying we know God exists because we believe in him, but he's saying we believe in God, we believe what he says is true, because we know him. Okay? We believe in God because we know him. And therefore we know we know him because we believe him. Does that make sense? <laughs> Possibly not. Okay, let me try again. I'll, I'll give you an example with Nay. So I know Nay, I know her, and therefore I believe her. I trust her. When she tells me she's not a Russian spy, I believe her because I know her. I believe what she says. If a ginger-haired lady with a Russian accent said to me, I'm not a Russian spy. I, I maybe, I'd maybe take it on face value, but I, I wouldn't necessarily believe her because I don't know her. But I know me, and so I believe her. And so it works the other way. Because I believe her, I can say that I know her. Yeah? My belief in her, my trust in her, is an evidence that I know her. The reason I believe is because I know her. I believe God. I believe what he tells me in his words. Even, even the bits that are hard, the bits that I don't understand. Ultimately, I believe what God says because I trust him. I know he loves me. I know that he wants me to know him. I know that he doesn't lie. I know that what he says is true. I can trust him. And because I trust him, John tells me, I know, I know him. Jesus says a similar thing in, John, in, in the Gospel of John, where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. 
My sheep hear my voice. One of the things that, one of the ways we know we are of Jesus' flock, we are of Jesus' sheep, is that we hear his voice and we recognise his voice and we believe it. Our belief in God helps us to know that we know him. Okay, so that's that. Second evidence that John, um, John points to in the, in the church is obedience. Obedience. Let me read you a few uh, more chunks. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, first of all. We know that we have come to know him. Here we are again. We know that we know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Okay. And then we'll also look at chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Actually, that's no one who lives in him sins. No one who continues to sin, that is again, no one who sins has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, he, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in him. He cannot sin, because because, um, he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So I hope you're feeling reassured by that. Well, I, there's lots to say about this, and we can't um, say everything that needs to be said, but we just got to try and catch the force of what John's, what John's saying. What, what is his point here? First of all, he doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you don't sin. Because one chapter earlier, he says, chapter 1, um, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. And that's not what he means. But he is saying, in as bold and clear-cut, black and white terms he can think of, he's saying that God's children are characterised. That is, they are known, uh, they, they know themselves, they, they're, and they're known by, by other people, not by their sin. They're not known by that. How could that be? Jesus came to take away our sins. No, God's children are characterised, known to themselves, known by others, by their obedience. And so when we look at our lives, though we will still see sin, and even our good stuff isn't that good, but still we see enough to know that God is at work in us. And like John Newton, 
the horrible slave trader who late in life turned to Christ, we will be able to say, if we are a child of God, I am not what I should be, I am not what I want to be, I am not what I will be, thank God we are not what we will be. Remember what John says in um, in chapter 3 verse 2, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. We are not what we will be. We are not what we should be. We are not what we want to be. We are not what we will be. But we are not what we were. And thank God I am what I am. That's what John Newton prayed. He looked back on his life and saw a real change. He saw God's power at work in his life. Dealing with his sin. Teaching him in the ways of righteousness. He wasn't perfect. But he saw enough to see God's power at work. John says that the children of God are characterised not principally by their sin, but by their righteousness. So, closely related to this, but especially emphasised by John, the third evidence that will reassure us that we know God is that we love. Because John says God is love. And for John, God's children will display the family likeness. And also, because God loved us, chapter 4, remember this, 10 um, to 11, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his sons an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For John, it is unthinkable that anyone who knows God's love for them who is a recipient of all that God has done for us in Christ, will not also love others. And he's not just talking about a, a sentimental warm feeling towards the person sat next to you, although that's nice if you've got that. Jesus wants us to love with action. Because Jesus loved us with action. He says this is how we know lo- what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? John wants us to reach for our wallets. And if this loving action does not characterise your relationships with others, John says that you should doubt that you know. How can the love of God be in him? if it doesn't work out in the way we live, in the way we love other people. If this is how you live with others, though, if, this is how you, if you see this love in your life, in your dealings with other people, um, this is further evidence that you know. John says 3 verse 19, This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Okay? So in this letter of reassurance... John provides three pieces of evidence to help these Christians know that they know. These things stand or fall together. Okay? It's not really a case of um, one or two out of three. You've got to have the whole lot because these things are completely interlinked. 
in this chapter, in this book, John kind of was all the time tying these things together. People who believe are people who love. People who love God are people who do what he says. That kind of thing. In chapter 5, he kind of tangles them all up together. You can look at that perhaps in your own time. But if we find evidence of these things going on in our life, then we can be reassured. But if we stop there, we will have gone badly wrong. Because though John says, if we see this evidence of God's work in our life, we can rest assured that we know him. And if our lives, when held up to these three tests, are pretty ambiguous, i.e. They're not, they're not really clear that we are increasingly characterised by trust, obedience and love, then John says we need to do a double take and make sure we really do know that we, what we know, that we, sorry, we really do know um, the one we thought we knew. But having said all that, these things are not and cannot and must not become the ultimate grounds of our assurance. They're evidence we can look to, but they are not what we ultimately hold on to. So let's see why. First of all, let's take love. Although love, says John, is an evidence that we live in God, okay, 416b is a good, good verse for that, um, and so we know and rely, sorry, um, if anyone acknowledges, sorry, no, again. God is love, 4, 4 verse 16, God is love, whoever lives in love lives in God, in God in him, okay? So, so John says that, that our love is an evidence that we live in God. I can never say that because I love God, I know God loves me. Because that's not why God loves me. We love, John says, because God first loved us. If I turn it around, if I use my love as an evidence that I'm a child of God, that God loves me, if I, I say I only know God loves me because I love, I will never love because I need to know and rely on the love God has for me if, in order to be able to love in the first place. Do you see the problem? Sorry, I'm lots of confusing sentences. Our love depends on God's love for us. And therefore we can't reassure ourselves with our love. We need to know and be assured of God's love. Same with obedience. John is emphatic. If you say you have no sin, you make God out to be a liar. And for this simple reason, our obedience cannot be the ultimate basis of our assurance because our obedience is never perfect. There is always sin. And same even with belief. John says, chapter 5, verse 1, if you want to turn to that. Sorry we're jumping around a lot. We're doing the whole book. <laughs> so chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, this, this translation um, obscures it a bit, but it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Actually, that, that should read, it's a kind of, um, the, the tense isn't quite right. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay? It's everyone who believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God. So what he's saying is not that we are born of God because we believe, 
but we believe because we are born of God. It might seem like a small difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. Our ultimate ground of assurance is found not in ourselves, but in God. We do not know we know by looking to ourselves, but by looking ultimately to God. Or, to put it differently, what matters finally is not that we know God, or even that we know we know. What ultimately matters is that he knows us. So I want us to finish by looking at what John says about our ultimate grounds of assurance. I've got three things. First of all, we can rest assured in the initiating love of the Father. We can rest assured in the sacrificial love of the Son, and we can rest assured in the anointing love of the Holy Spirit. So, first of all, the initiating love of God. To reassure his church, John points them to the great love of the Father. This is my favourite bit in the whole letter. Chapter 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. The, The King James Version says, what manner of love is this? And that's a better translation. It's hard to translate because it's an idiom. Um, Idioms are really hard to translate. If you try to translate, um, literally, it's raining cats and dogs into French, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. These English are crazy. (laughs) But it's hard to translate because it's literally saying, "What, what country does this love come from? What country does this love come from? It's literally saying, what is this love? Where does it come from? What what planet is this love from? You see, John knows that it's an absolute miracle that God loves us. It's an absolute miracle. And if you don't get this, if you are not astonished by the fact that God loves you, you don't get Christianity. You see, God doesn't love us because we are lovable. We're really not. We are wicked rebels. God doesn't love us and make us his children because we are lovely, but simply because he is loving. And if you don't get this, sorry, if you get this, you will be amazed. And of course, you too will love. It's quite a good test. If you're not amazed at God's love for you, you don't get it. And it probably means that you think you've got to earn it. You're not amazed by your paycheck at the end of the month. You don't say to your boss, what manner of love is this that you are paying me my wage? (laughs) We can't earn God's love. We don't deserve it. It is completely alien. It is a miracle. And if you think you can earn God's love, it probably means that all we've been saying so far, that we can know God's love for us, that we can know we're children of God, that we can know we're going to be with him in heaven, just sounds so arrogant. How can you say you know you're a child of God? What an arrogant claim. I suppose it'd be like me saying, I know my my wife loves me, because who wouldn't? (laughs) 
That's not what we're saying. God loves us and it's a miracle. There is no reason why God should love us and yet he does. He calls us his children. And this is the ground of our assurance. I want to read you a section from Knowing God by Jay Packer. Listen to this, it's really nice. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands, I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a son, one as a father knows his son, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. He goes on to talk about the assurance that comes from this knowledge. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that um, no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. Nothing about me will quench his determination to bless me. He sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see, and I am glad they do not see it. He sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself, which in all conscience is enough. It is humbling, but there is equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his son. He has given his son to die for me in order to realise this purpose. That's wonderful. So we can first of all rest assured in the initiating love of the Father, a love that doesn't depend on us. Second, we can rest assured ultimately because of the sacrificial love of the Son. The cross the death of Jesus stands in history as the proof of God's love. When things go wrong in your life, when you find yourself angry and disillusioned with God, you must at some point reckon with the fact that God sent his one and only son into the world as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Whatever it is, weigh it up against the cross. God really does love you. And this fact of the cross is where we find assurance when we think our sins disqualify us. John says in 1 verse 9, it's on page. he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Think about God. Right now, you are on his mind. 
His eyes are right on you. Right now, as you're sitting there, think about God. Is he smiling or is he frowning? What does it depend on? How you feel at this moment, whether you feel close to God or not? No. Or your performance over the last week, what you've been up to last night, your prayer life, whether you've been obeying him, disobeying him? No, it doesn't depend on that. Or maybe it's whether you've been contrite and remorseful enough about the things you have done wrong. No, it's not about that. Or on the strength of your faith, or on how tightly you are holding on to God and relying on his mercy. It's not even about that. In Christ, because of his sacrifice, God has forgotten our sin and looks at us 24-7 with a warm and loving smile. When you sin, he forgives you in Christ. John says, because he is faithful and just. Do you get that? Faithful to forgive, that, that makes sense. But just. How can forgiveness be just? What does justice have to do with forgiveness? Justice is about punishing wrongdoing, not forgiving it. But you see, our wrongdoing has been punished. Justice has been accomplished. The price for our wickedness has been paid. Just not by us, but by Jesus. As he died, he took the punishment that should have been ours on our behalf. And God is just. He will not punish our sin twice. God dealt with our sin in himself through the death of his son. And so we stand him, stand before him forgiven and pure. The cross proves God's loving kindness towards us forever and secures God's loving kindness towards us forever. We can know and rely on the love God has for us. This is our assurance. Finally, very last thing. We know we can be we can know we know the love of God we know that we are children of God because of the anointing love of the holy spirit the anointing love of the holy spirit the holy spirit makes this love a reality in our hearts as i am telling you about god's love for you as you read about god's love in his word it doesn't just remain out there ringing in your ears because god himself by his holy spirit is whispering to your heart. This is for you. This love is yours in Christ. Hold on to it, enjoy it, know it. This is what John is talking about in chapter 2, verse 27. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. The Holy Spirit himself speaks to your heart. God's word is alive. When he speaks, he speaks to your heart by his spirit. 
Jesus is alive. He's not dead and buried in a grave. He is loose and at large. And when his word is preached, and sometimes when it's not, Jesus is in the world calling people to himself and living in the hearts of those who know him, reassuring them of God's miraculous, sacrificial, anointing love. Last thing, because of this, because of God's love, because of this anointing by the Holy Spirit, we will not be left as we were. This anointing of the Holy Spirit changes us. God's love is effective, it will change us. You cannot know God's love and not be changed. To use John's language, it will be made complete in us. God's love completes itself in us when we love, when we love each other, when we love God. And we will obey where we did not obey before. We will believe God where we did not believe before. And we will love where we did not love before. And this, John says, is how we know we can know. Let's pray. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. Father God, we thank you that you want us to know, you want us to rest assured, to know and rely on the love you have for us. We thank you so much for your wonderful love, your wonderful, miraculous love that we do not deserve, the wonderful love that you proved in the death of Jesus on the cross, the love that sent Jesus to the cross gladly on our behalf, and the love that you pour out into our heart by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that we can rest in this love, that we can hold on to this love, and that this love will indeed transform our lives so that we believe you where we did not believe before, we obey you where we did not obey before, and we love where we did not love before. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.